This is Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. My name is Yacid Ortega, your host for today, and we have today a PhD candidate in the program of social justice education, and we hope and I'm sure we will have a great conversation. Welcome. Thank you, Yacid. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No, no problem. Anytime. And Christina, can you tell us a little bit about you? Right. So my name is Christina Sherry Jaimungle, and my professional background or education background is in English and professional writing. I did my BA at York University, and then I came to OISE to do my master's because I actually wanted to be a better teacher. So I came back to uh, CTL, the Department of Curriculum Teaching and Learning, did a collaborative in comparative international development and did my master's there and now I am doing my PhD in social justice education and also a collaborative in comparative international development education. Um, what brought me to to this conversation with you I guess is really also my professional experience. Um, I've taught English for 10 years in Toronto and in Japan. I lived uh, three years abroad And um, I've taught in both the private and public education sectors in informal and formal learning spaces. And I've also done a lot of community building and advocacy work at the graduate level for specifically for graduate students. Um, but yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. That sounds interesting. Do you want to share with the audience anything about your background, like your family, you know, where you're coming from? I mean, I, people know that I my background is Colombian, Latin American, etc., that I speak Spanish. Do you speak any other languages? I, I actually only speak English. Uh, I also have a little bit of conversational Japanese from when I used to live in Japan. Um, but yeah, I was born in Trinidad, so English was the native language. <laughs> that was the language that I was um, I grew up in. I was actually born in a small village called Esperance Village. And both my parents were working class, Paul and Croatia Jaimungal. And I'm one of four siblings. Um, I'm actually the first woman in my family to have the honor and the privilege to pursue a PhD. So it's really exciting. And uh, it makes me think of all the different kinds of opportunities that I have that my parents did not have like my mom for example was the youngest in her family she was not even able to to finish school my dad was a middle child like me and he was self-taught in terms of um, learning different skills to survive so he used to build houses back home in Trinidad he would build houses there and and he did a bunch of different odd jobs like selling vegetables in a market to being a teacher and then came to Toronto and my mom worked in a factory while he went to school again because he had to go through that whole process again to become a certified uh, teacher. And yeah, so I'm really fortunate to have a very supportive family who who's worked really, really hard and has not had the kind of opportunities I've had to, to think about the kinds of questions and to talk about the kinds of things around language that we're going to be getting to today. Nice. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm little by little. I'm getting into our topic for today. But before going into that, uh, you reminded me of a conversation I had earlier today with a friend of mine. 
who I asked, uh, where are you going to go for your holidays? And she said, oh, I'm going to South America. And in my mind, I was like, oh, where? Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Chile, Argentina, or Brazil? I said, neither of those. And I said, well, but that's South America. I said, well, I'm going to Guyana, I guess. And I said, oh, it got me thinking. It got me thinking because it's real. Guyana is, a, is one of those countries that is in South America and also Trinidad and Tobago. But but I never realized that it's actually South America until like like I actually pay attention to this. So for you, Christina, why do you think that, that these things happen out there, that we assume things out there, that things are there and things are not there? Why, why does this happen? I think it's interesting to think about the colonial legacies that brought certain people to particular countries. So when people ask me where I'm from and I say Trinidad, I'm referring to the Caribbean and I never really say Latin America unless I know the person is from somewhere in South America right. and they might know where Trinidad is or I, I might say, you know, close by there or someone who doesn't know the Caribbean well, you know, I might explain geographically we're close to South America, uh, you know, just just a little bit north of Venezuela, next yeah. to Guyana, you know, like close in, in that vicinity. Um, but yeah, I think it really has to do with some of the identity politics of um, and colonial histories of how these countries were built. Right, mm -hmm. and um, I know you have interesting mm -hmm. topics for today. What one of those topics that you want to share with us today? Um, one of the things I wanted to us to talk through. It's a question I I often get asked: is why colonialism? Yes. Right? Why study the link between? English and colonialism in 2019, right? <laughs> right. right. Um, and this is a question I've been thinking deeply about for some time. And recently on rereading the work of Penny Cook, he actually responds to this question and he offers some insight into why colonialism is a useful, um, is a useful idea ideology, but also historical moment to think about when it comes to English language teaching. And one of the things that he says is that it's important to think about the context in which English language teaching developed, right? It didn't develop, the, the pedagogies and theories we have about how to teach a language did not develop in isolation, even within the, within the, um, the mother countries themselves. They didn't develop in Britain. They actually developed in the colonies, and then were imported back into Britain, right? And then extended through other global education projects. So these are, we're in a way recycling some of these ideas from a period in time that was built around the idea that we need to dominate and control how people live and think in order for them to be productive human beings in a capitalist society. Right? And that is really interesting to think about the conditions in, under which language teaching pedagogies actually developed. Yeah, you got me thinking about something really important, especially because um, you mentioned the idea of the English language being used in, in the colonies, right? You know, the English people went around the world and colonized different countries. But I wonder what your thoughts are on those countries in which, or, or yeah, in which um, English people did not colonize necessarily, 
but English may be perceived as a colonizing language or the language of the the colonizer and like you said to dominate and control let's say Latin America Mexico Colombia Ecuador Peru and other countries around the world in which in which English is permeated not necessarily as a as a, as a similar way in which the colonies came and took control of the territories etc and then that's why English is spoken in different in those countries like I don't know Sri Lanka India maybe South Africa etc so is there a difference between that type of colonization and the other one that I'm sort of mentioning that you think so are you asking the difference between colon in English speaking or countries that became English speaking and countries that were were colonized by other dominant yeah. languages yeah, sure, yeah sure. I, th I think it's important to make these kinds of distinctions because as as we're talking about different countries, it's so easy to kind of generalize, right? And I think when we're thinking about local context, it's so important to understand how does colonial colonialism operate in this specific context, right? So colonialism or English language colonialism in Trinidad is very different than, than the way Spanish and Portuguese dominated other countries and also colonized other countries with dominant languages, right? Um, but the, I'm sure there are similarities. I personally don't study <laughs> those particular languages, but I think that there's definitely some patterns in terms of what happens to the local languages, what happens to the local knowledges, what happens to the local customs and ideas about how to survive in the world and what counts and what's valued. I think it's interesting to think about those kinds of questions to tease out different patterns that might be present. Yeah, I remember reading something about the um, colonization of the mind a while ago, and then it has to do, or it speaks to what you, you said, right? Because I have not studied uh, colonization from the idea, the political idea of taking territories necessarily. But but I, I have sort of borrowed ideas and studied other folks who have talked about how these patterns, as you said, are sort of sent out to the minds of people to make them believe, like you said, the local knowledge, the local languages, their customs, their ideas are not valid or they are lesser lesser or less value than than how they are and it's not necessarily like people coming in you know and taking the territories but it's, it, this is done insidiously via social media or media in general uh, television you know radio you know social media right now different types of wave and then this penetrates into our societies and sometimes we don't even see it coming yet i believe it's another type of domination, another type of colonization in which in which we actually defend it. And I remember when I was younger studying to become a teacher, an English teacher, uh, to become an English teacher, and I defended the English language so badly that I was, you know, diminishing my own language and my own indigenous cultures, etc. So I wonder why all of these things happen. Do you have any yeah. notes on that? Right. So 
I want to go back to something you said about this kind of territorial occupation, right? When people hear the word colonialism, I think it definitely evokes this sense of state control or some sort of state power. And I think, you know, when you just do a quick Google search over uh, about the word colonialism, that's what comes up. Territorial occupation, technological power, state power over policy, language, resources, these kinds of things that help control a country's wealth. Um, when it comes to thinking about the effects of colonialism, which is oftentimes when we're using the word colonialism, we're also talking about the effects of what those kinds of policies produced at a certain time, but how they are still continuing on today. So that that example that you gave about denigrating your own language and kind of looking down at your own language and not wanting to use it is something that I can relate to as well. I mean, growing up, I wasn't allowed to speak Trinidadian English. I wasn't allowed to really use it. And it wasn't so much that I was punished, but it was not looked highly upon. So my parents would just say, you know, speak proper English. Like they would say, make sure you get good grades and these kinds of subtle ways that were actually meant with the intention of improving my life so that I guess on some level they knew that if I sounded like the way I'm sounding right now (laughs) that I would be perceived as more intelligent because I'm not using home language like Trinidadian English and I had a friend in in grade school who was a Trinidadian friend and she um she asked me do I speak this way at home and I said and I was 10 by this time and I said yeah this is this is this is my voice. This is how I speak. And she looked so appalled because she then said that, oh, when she goes home, she speaks, you know, she speaks different. And then she put on her like Trinidadian English. Um, I, I don't use the word accent, <laughs> but she uses Trinidadian English at home. And she really felt that by me not using Trinidadian English at home, somehow it made me kind of less Trini. Um, and I felt that because I wanted, I felt like that's my home and that's where I belong and that's who I am. That was part of my identity. So this this um, difference in language and me not being able to use my home language or my home English in the way that she was using it, I don't know, I felt a little sad. <laughs> I felt a little sad and it made me wonder why, why that was. How about now? feel sad well now this is kind of how I speak right um I've lived I came here when I was four I grew up here I the only time I ever can use Trinidadian English is if I'm around Trinidadian family and then we're talking about like we're just having a good time having a lime taking a lime taking a drink eating food just spending time together that's when some of the words might come out as Trinidadian English but it's not conscious it's just it just happens and it's not forced if i was to try and do it now it would sound forced and yes, inauthentic yeah. of course definitely there is something that resonated with me as you were speaking uh, the idea of improving one's life and for me when i was younger nobody told me anything but somehow it seems like like society somehow uh, in like pushes you towards quote-unquote improving your life and English in a sense improves your life right and I want to say in that sense improve my life because I learned English I studied in English medium I live in the United States for 10 years 
I am living right now in Canada. I'm a Canadian citizen now because I learned English. So in a sense, I was able to get out of the country, which was and still is in social political turmoil. That in a sense, I would say to me, yes, it it did improve my life. I actually moved socially. So so why say what what is wrong with that? A lot of people ask me, what is wrong with English? What would you say about this? Yeah, that, that's a common comment I hear as well. And I think the important thing to highlight is that, yes, mastering a particular language, especially a dominant language, that's the language of international business, does afford power, right? Fanon says this, right? Mastery of language affords power, right? Remarkable power indeed. Um, but what the, the, the other important thing to, to ask is why? Why is it only one particular language, right? And oftentimes the biggest argument you hear is practicality, right? Because sy systems have already been built around English as an international global language. Education has already been built around systems that support single language, or sometimes in some cases like Canada, um, English and French, but not really. Um, Anyways, the point is we need to be asking why, right? And when I was listening to one of your other podcast conversations with Souza, he was promoting multilingualism, right? And multilingualism scares a lot of people because we don't know how to create systems that support plurilingual learning. There is research that shows that children who actually speak multiple languages from a young age, are highly creative, highly, you know, um, not only highly creative, but they do well on tests if you want to use those kinds of metrics. Um, and also in terms of understanding and relating to other human beings, right? Language is not just this tool of communication. It really is about understanding another way of being, understanding another perspective. So when we talk about multilingualism and plurilingualism, I think that idea scares people because we don't know how to do it well. And there are few examples, there are examples of it working in some classrooms in some local contexts. In Latin America, there's, I've read a few case studies where there's multiple languages being used, even in, in other countries like in Japan, or even in, in Toronto with heritage languages and things like that being promoted. Like there are, there are examples of these things being done, but teachers are not being trained in how to do them. We don't know what the best practices and pedagogies are for these instances, we need to think really carefully about how to apply it in a local classroom setting and not necessarily focus so much on how we're going to apply this everywhere, but we need to be thinking about how to do that locally, right? So that we're not reproducing the same type of attitudes where we think our own language is not valuable or not useful, right? So many times I've heard of Trinidadian English, for example, being referred to as broken English, even within my own friends and family, like we explain that particular kind of English as being broken. And that's such a disability model of understanding language. Like, what does that mean when you say broken, right? The language isn't broken. It has its own grammatical structure. Linguistically, it is a language on its own. But this idea that it isn't broken English kind of diminishes the value of that language. So I think the way we talk about language and the way we accept other languages and ideas about language is so important. Yeah, I wonder who was this person or this system that brought the idea of broken languages. And also, it resonates the idea when you say multilingualism scares people. 
and the first thing that came to my mind was of course it is curse people those who are in the positions of power they want to keep the status quo but then you brought the idea maybe those who are scared are actually teachers because they don't know how to do these things they may they may have good intentions but they may not have the tools or the resources or the training necessary to address all these issues out there but i agree with you with if we start acting locally meaning if you are from toronto why don't we do things locally if you are from your country do things that 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 sort of answers or responds to to your local needs and it's interesting because uh before coming to this uh a recording of this podcast today i was out of a meeting uh, of a thesis in colombia master thesis in colombia specifically in which we talk about the use of spanish in the english class and then we sort of talk about translanguaging code switching and we talk about plurilingualism as a way to help out the students to understand and make meaning in an english um lesson for example so i think that idea resonates a lot with me the idea of of, of how we're going to help out those teachers those educators to understand that so um, i guess there is some kind of hope out there what do you think definitely and i think there is more and more material being produced by racialized um, academics actually exploring this question uh, one book that i recently came across haven't had a chance to read it in depth yet but it it's so fascinating is uh, Sudan the Moda's work called Race, Empire, and English Language Teaching. And in that book, she actually interviews different language teachers. I believe it's four of them. And the book is all about how these teachers use their own classrooms to create responsible and ethical anti-racist practice, right? Um, and this is only four teachers. But I think sometimes this is actually how teachers learn, right? Like you only learn on how to do something by trying something new and by seeing what works for someone else might not work for your particular context, but you can shift it and it's supposed to be transformative, right? And when it comes to education in general, I think this is where English language teaching and learning really falls short, that we're so much of what is out there already is reproducing the same pedagogies, the same theories, the same communicative approaches to learning language, um, grammatical approaches, linguistics approaches to learning language in the classroom in order to pass a test. And we're not actually thinking about how can we actually use language to trans education and language to actually transform lives, right? And I think that's a crucial part of education. And that's what we should be those are the kinds of questions that I, I want to be asking and I want to be looking at scholars who are also thinking about this too. Yes, um, I'm thinking about this and obviously this is not my space and time to talk about my research because it's about your work. But just a quick note, on my work that I did in Colombia in the ethnographic work that I mm -hmm. did, the teachers are in a sense challenging and problematizing that exact idea of what is given right like teachers are doing things of what, how not to reproduce what is given looking at pedagogies of uh, using social justice oriented pedagogies right and then the question is how do we move forward with these ideas and i love what the teachers are doing because they said 
And they keep saying, we are doing this because we hope to transform. We hope to change. We hope that these students, at some point that is not today or tomorrow, they're going to change the future as we have it today. And then I was reading a piece from you and Dr. Day, and then you talk about the colonial praxis, and it resonates a lot to what's happening there, meaning how we're going to change the current paradigm of capitalism, neoliberalism, patriarchy, etc., if it is not with actual things that make changes in real life. I want to move into this specific topic because you're an expert and, I, and since you're here, I want to hear your comments on what do we mean by decolonial praxis? Okay, that's a good question, and it's a question that I'm thinking about from multiple positions and standpoints. I like that you call, like highlight the word praxis because it involves not just theorizing and thinking, right? There's an action component that's tied to it. Um, I think when I've read different indigenous scholars, African indigenous scholars, as well as indigenous scholars from here in Canada and in the States as well, one of the things I've noticed um, coming up in work on decolonization is that decolonization it depends on what you're first of all what topic you're talking about in relation to decolonization but it's something to think about in terms of psychological material and also practice right with that action com component um, so when I'm understanding decolonization, I am thinking about it in psychological terms, right? The way Watiango talks about decolonizing the mind. I'm also thinking about it in material terms, the way Eve Talk talks about it not being just a metaphor and cautions scholars to not just treat it as this metaphor. And I'm also thinking about it as an intentional practice, right? What are you doing intentionally to think about the actions you do on an everyday basis to actually change systems? And what system are you even defining, right? I think one of the critiques that um, I hear about the, this kind of work that we do is what system are you challenging, right? And I think like answering that question and being specific, going back to the local context, like the classroom experience you're talking about in, in your own research work is so important, right? That transformation for, that, for students, what did that transformation mean? It meant that they were bringing in visual arts into the classroom and also into the streets, right? They were using multiple modalities to actually think about language and to communicate thoughts and ideas that were not just centered on your proficiency in English. I'm so glad that you're saying this because it actually resonates exactly to the work that the students are doing. And not necessarily only the students that I work with and the teachers that I work with, but a bunch of teachers out there in Colombia and elsewhere because, you know, my work is international and comparative education. So throughout my work, I've seen the same type of work in, uh, in Mexico, in Chile, Ecuador, and Argentina, looking at specific things that are, that are practical, right? Like, like transform their, their own context. And like you were saying, students who are doing projects, like raising funds to get some money to get some food for stray dogs, raising money uh, to sort of be like a shelter for homeless people, uh, raising money to get uh, resources for to, to, to challenge uh, teenage pregnancy, for example, drug addiction, etc. Like real, real and concrete action that the teachers and the students are doing, and I am really proud of that. That's why this idea of, of praxis resonates a lot with the work that I have done. 
Exactly. And I think that really highlights the fact that you're not just teaching in order to transport knowledge and or impart knowledge onto another human being. You're actually creating human beings, right? You're creating human beings that are going to be thinking creatively. And we know from, again, research and from TED Talks that education kills creativity, right? Um, So this is also part of the work that we're doing. Social justice education work is creative work right it's emotional labor it's intellectual work it's creative and I love seeing I love seeing your presentation and I love seeing how other teachers take this up in their own classroom spaces and they're doing it under systems that they're not that that are kind of restricting right they're doing it under systems where their students have to um, have a certain degree of proficiency or have to pass a certain test or need to know linguistic uh, grammatical the grammatical construction of a sentence, different things like this, they're still doing it even under those um, constraints. So I think it's really amazing to see how resistance works in these spaces. And that's what that is, creativity and resistance. If you were to give advice to teachers right now, you have uh, 30 teachers, English teachers, I would ask them to think about their own relationship to language. If they were English teachers, I would ask them to think about their own relationship to English. How did they learn to speak that language? Why do they speak the way they do? Why are they teaching it the way they are? And for what purpose, right? What's the end, what's the end goal here? I think those questions are useful starting and reflection points And there were questions that I was asking myself when I was teaching English in Japan. You know, here I was going into a classroom um, and the teachers actually they didn't expect me to be white because my my resumes, my resume had my picture on it. And I would have to send a video like my school um, would send a video, my sorry, my organization that I worked for would send a video to the school. So they pretty much saw how I looked before I got the job. So it wasn't like a big surprise that I was a racialized person walking into the classroom but I did have people tell me that they were relieved that my English was so clear right that I spoke very clearly and I spoke I sounded like a Canadian Um, and they were relieved and that was the end of that discussion Uh, so yeah so I think those are those are kind of the questions that I mentioned before are useful starting points to think about your own not necessarily even identity your own relationship right to that language Oh, definitely. We just have a few minutes, and I know there is a lot of things to say here, and we could probably do three podcasts out of these conversations because the conversations may may be so juicy. So I wonder if there is anything out there that you want to share with us that we have not said in the next few minutes and that you really, really want to share with all of our audience out there. I actually want to offer a question and the question I have here is what is the consequence of not doing this work and by doing this work it could be whatever work the, this listener is here is doing right now or it could be what is the consequence of not thinking about the link between English language education and colonialism I think asking that question is important because in asking a question like that we'll then understand better why it is important to do this work. And for every single person that asks themselves that question, I think that it will resonate differently and it will help uh, 
understand your purpose, right? I think research should have a purpose and there should be a benefit to to whom. So that these are the kinds of questions that I would actually offer to to listeners, right? What are the consequences of not doing this work? Who's benefiting? I love this question and then I'm going to ask our audience to marinate this question over the holidays and all the time, at all times actually, because this is a very important question that we must ask ourselves every day, every time we go into classrooms, every time we do research, just keep asking ourselves these type of questions is important. And that being said, we're going to finish soon today because the holidays are coming We got a lot of stuff to do, a lot of presents to wrap, people to visit. Christina, what are your plans for the holidays? I'm going to be cleaning a lot. It de-stresses me. Sure. <laughs> And um, spending time with family, cooking, that sort of thing, catching up on some reading as well. Sweet. Yeah. What's your favorite holidays? Food. Holiday food. Is there any specific I'm, I'm from go- back home? I'm, any- I'm going to steal what VJ mentioned in his podcast. Oh, really? I love doubles. Really? Yeah. Oh it, it's not something that we eat every day. It's like a snack food. Well, like you'd eat it for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. But it's basic, it's fried dough with like right. chickpeas, like oh. chickpeas and potatoes and curry. But it's not something you would have every day. So that's kind of, um, it's kind of a treat. Yeah. Do you cook it? Or do you buy I, it? I make it with my mom. Good. That's even better <laughs> yeah, when yeah. you cook with your mom. It's like going yeah. back to the idea of relationships. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I like the holidays for that reason, because it allows us to connect with those ones who we have not much contact during the year. So it's a special occasion. In Colombia, we eat um, buñuelos, empanadas, tamales. Mm. We eat a lot. But because I'm vegetarian, I won't be able to eat all the things that happen in Colombia. But I'm happy to eat and, of course, uh, drinking a couple of glasses of wine. That would be great. So that's what I will be doing over the holidays, sharing some family and friend time in the next few weeks. That's awesome. Actually, so in spring, I visited Trinidad after 20 years. I hadn't been back in 20 years. And I took a bunch of different pictures. And one thing that I really want to do before the end of this year is I want to start a new Instagram page on archiving memories and stories and thinking about old times and just really thinking about reconnecting with family. I think that by living here, there's so much, so many friends and families that my parents and myself have lost touch with. And it's just really nice to to hear the stories about the different cooking tools that our families use and the different places that they lived in and, you know, how they all used to wash clothes together in like a park that's now just a... You know, uh, it's just a park that people go and walk in. And it's just really nice to hear these stories. And it's not something that I can read in a book. It's only something that I can hear from my family's mouth. So I really, really want to start this archive of memories and stories, highlighting pictures, but also the memories that go with them. That's really important to me. I like this. Mm -hmm. With that note of New Year's resolutions, let's try to connect with your folks, your families, your communities. Let's hear all the stories for the new year and beyond. This is Chasing Encounters. My name is Jesse Ortega. Happy holidays, everybody.
Uh, so this morning I woke up and made some breakfast and then I listened to some meditation podcasts um, on YouTube and did some yoga and breathing exercises and thought about what is exciting about today. And this was the top of my list. 